You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, Senior Multimedia Specialist here at NCQA. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, exists to improve healthcare in America. We want to make care better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. If you're a fan of this podcast or you have feedback, write to us at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. In this episode, we start to wrap up 2023 with two interviews that each demonstrate how close we are to solving the challenges of health disparities and digital transformation. Our first interview finds a real-life last-mile solution that will bring historically underserved populations to the healthcare services they need and deserve. Our second interview reveals how improved efficiencies in digitalization actually make it easier to add even more data and more data crunching into the mix. But first, NCQA's Patient-Centered Medical Home Recognition Program is the most widely adopted PCMH evaluation program in the United States. More than 10,000 practices, and that includes over 50,000 clinicians, are all recognized for PCMH, by NCQA. There are so many benefits and such great results when a practice adopts the medical home model of care. The practice can reduce fragmentation, which then improves communication streams across care coordination. It can manage chronic conditions better, helping patients get healthier and get healthier faster. Costs are lower, staff satisfaction improves, everyone's happy. So it's no wonder that so many university-level healthcare programs are determined to train professionals in PCMH measures and standards. Which brings me to our first interview with FIT4DC. That's P-H-I-T, FIT, P-H-I-T-4-D-C, the Public Health Informatics and Technology for the District of Columbia Workforce Diversification Program. On this show, Inside Healthcare, we often realize that even when solutions to healthcare disparities are put in place, they sometimes don't work. And why? Because the populations that we're trying to reach, trying to help, no longer trust the healthcare system. And that's even if the services are brought to the neighborhood, even if the services are free of charge. So what is the so-called last mile solution? Well, here's one answer. Have people from the community help bring patients to the services. And these could include community-based health organizations, CBOs, uh, community health workers, CHWs, or really any respected community leader that the people trust. But what if these helpers were also healthcare professionals trained in setting up or running a clinic or a hospital? What if they're healthcare executives? who can then gain support from colleagues outside the community? And what if these professionals were also born and raised in the communities they serve? That is a formula for bridging the last mile of health equity, and it's part of the vision of my next two guests. Fit for DC brings together public health programs at two HBCUs, that's historically black colleges and universities, and in this case, namely, the University of the District of Columbia and Howard University. 
Together, they train professionals from historically underserved neighborhoods in 21st century IT knowledge and skills so that they can return to their neighborhoods and give back to their communities, PCMH style. We have two esteemed guests today to tell us all about Fit for DC. Dr. Mary Awanda currently serves as an associate professor and director of the Center of Excellence at the Howard University College of Pharmacy. In her directorship role, she helps the college advance its healthcare workforce diversification mission and student academic success initiatives. Dr. Awanda received her PhD in pharmacy administration with an emphasis in training in pharmacoepidemiology and health services research, all from Howard University, and has been a faculty researcher for over 10 years. She has published in the areas of minority health, health disparities, health outcomes research, all of which we love at NCQA, and workforce diversification. Our other guest is Hannah George, a healthcare consultant with years of service across the healthcare industry. She's been a college professor and a mentor for nursing students and director of nursing for multiple home health agencies in the District of Columbia. She's worked on multiple healthcare research protocols and served as senior clinical lead on multiple projects and initiatives. Hannah has a BSN from Howard University and holds both an MBA and an MSN with a concentration in executive leadership. She's also certified in project management, is a certified professional of healthcare quality, that's a CPHQ, and certified professional in patient safety, CPPS. Fit for DC, the program they're about to talk about, trains PCMH professionals in order to send them to work in and support their hometown communities and neighborhoods. It's a powerful solution for bridging the gap in health equity provision. And it's probably possible to set up this model in any U.S. city. But as you can imagine, it's no small feat. Here's Dr. Awanda to start us off. So the FIT for DC program stands for Public Health Informatics and Technology for DC, uh, FIT for DC. Um, It is an ONC funded $8 million cooperative agreement um, that was received by the University of the District of Columbia, UDC, and Howard University, um, primarily to, uh, to train 500 underrepresented minority participants in public health informatics and technology. Uh, It is one of the largest public health workforce diversification programs that the Office of the National Coordinator has funded. And so we are very fortunate um, to have been uh, given the opportunity to lead the charge in this area. Um, The Fit for DC program is led by UDC as a prime institution with Howard serving uh, in a primarily uh, subcontractor role uh, alongside several consortium partners who have really been instrumental in developing our program. Um, special shout out to Zane Networks, uh, DC Primary Care Association, uh, CRISP DC, DHCF, and NCQA now, um, and many others. So our program has several pathways, um, and this was intentionally done so that we could really offer a four-door model where entry is welcome at any point along the training continuum. So we have a career starter pathway, a career changer pathway, a career advancer pathway and a career expert and professional pathway. So that's, you know, broadly the gist uh, of our program. So we have people joining the program from all different uh, professional backgrounds or are most of them coming in from a healthcare background or do you encourage people from other 
professional or administrative or statistics based uh, uh, backgrounds and, and training to to join the program? That's a great question. We are encouraging um, professionals from all backgrounds. So, for example, the career changer pathway is for someone who uh, is in a workforce and wants to change their career to a healthcare career. Uh, conversely, the career advancers pathway is for someone who is in healthcare and wants to advance themselves. And the career starter pathway is for someone who really hasn't joined the workforce at all and really is looking to uh, enter the field of public health IT uh, in you know through our program. So it's really open to any and all individuals who are seeking advancement in this area. So what's going on now? What, what's the newest offering that uh, Fit for DC is working on now? The newest offering by Fit for DC falls under the expert and professional pathway, um, and we're really excited about it. And it's a collaboration between our College of Pharmacy, who has really been charged with executing this part of the pathway in the cooperative agreement, uh, and NCQA. So our collaboration uh, is to bring uh, and provide PCMH training to DC and other regional non-physician providers, such as pharmacists and nurse practitioners who render care for underserved populations in the district. Uh, our effort also expands to healthcare administrators uh, who are likely going to be uh, positioned well uh, with this training. And so our program is prioritizing all these groups and also prioritizing underrepresented minority applicants across all these groups. Uh, we really feel that this collaboration um, is, is, is really well-timed, uh, both organizationally and institutionally. And Howard as an HBCU is well-positioned to make an impact in a way that our patients can receive quality care and equity in care because of our HBCU mission uh, and overall strategic focus of our institution, which has really been strengthened after the pandemic. So I, I'd like to talk about health equity. Uh, I'm, I'm sure this is a this is a great opportunity to be able to talk about it. Now. And and here's the context I, I was going to use. Uh, a lot of uh, places, a lot of people on the show who I've talked to, when we talk about health equity, ultimately the success of anything that's done to increase access to care, um, it has to be coupled with drilling down to the community level. Uh, because providing access to care or facilities in a neighborhood that's uh, historically been ignored, um, it doesn't always bring people to the service itself. And the best way to do that is have people within the community who know the community and who are, are trusted within there, that those are the folks working on, on the ground to to help encourage people and bring people and advise people um, on their healthcare journeys there. So there's obviously an undercurrent of health equity throughout Fit for DC in, in this program. Um, and of course, as mentioned before, that Howard uh, University is a historically black university. Um, so uh, talk about some of that. And that's a, you make really great points uh, on the health equity front. And one of the things that we were very intentional as a group from the beginning and the inception uh, of our programming is that a lot of folks talk about health equity by design in terms of systems design. We really wanted to bake in healthcare uh, equity improvement by designing our workforce training. What do we mean by that? Well, first we wanted to make sure, as you said, that we drew candidates from historically neglected neighborhoods. And so training them with the knowledge and skills to establish and administer effective healthcare programs related to FIT uh, would then create a, a good 
feed a feeder and pipeline into the communities that they serve uh, in order to resolve those health equity gaps. Um, so that's one we wanted to bake equity by, you know, by design, by our recruitment strategy. We also wanted to localize our use cases for our scholars. And so there's a lot of evidence out there that suggests that diversifying the healthcare workforce does reduce healthcare disparities. And so we're diversifying the workforce, but we're also leveraging use cases locally that emphasizes the disparities and the gaps in care coordination, the disparities and the gaps in terms of health outcomes, so that the pipeline that we're developing is very sensitive to what their marching orders are. And so we use a term in our program, we want them to be shovel ready so that when they get on the ground, they're able to have an impact in terms of helping us all collectively bridge the health equity gaps. Hannah, tell me about the collaboration between uh, the University of DC and uh, their healthcare program and uh, uh, and Howard for uh, for Fit for DC. So um, healthcare equity is huge, and we can see here how Howard University has been positioned to collaborate with partners within the district. They've been doing this for many decades and many years. Um, this program will directly benefit the community around it. One such program is the Fit for DC. It's so exciting. It's it's really very exciting to see how Howard University will partner with NCQA to further impact the community around it. And, and, and by this, preparing healthcare professionals for success um, for not only themselves, but the community around it. So for either one of you, I, I wanna hear a little bit about what do you learn from the participants? Uh, and, and honestly, I, as, as the educators, as the, uh, the, the people putting together the program, um, this is a community-based program, and if you don't have people coming into the program, if you don't have participants, then it, it 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 doesn't work. So, what kind of feedback have you heard from participants coming in? Uh, the reasonings they have for joining the program, their thoughts during the program, um, reflections they have when they're done, or even uh, for folks from uh, maybe two years ago or three or so who are now in that workforce and talking back to you, uh, just anything that you've heard from them, what kind of reflections do you get from them? So um, one of the things that we plan to really hone on is to learn from our participants, really understanding their pain points in healthcare, like how are they able to ensure that their patients um, continue care um, adhere to their care plan. We really want to know some of the methods that they're using to establish those relationships with their patients to continue care in a way that the patients feel like they're stakeholders of their own care as well. Um, from our experiences in the past, um, a training like PCMH um, would really help our providers and the clinical care team to practice at the top of your license. We are hoping that they will come with some of their experiences, but they'll also come with um, an opportunity to learn approaches that would um, put the patient in the center of care. And um, we plan to do this through surveys um, before we start, during the program, and even after the program. When we think of this program, clearly we have people around the country who are listening to this show. Uh, and they will gradually be thinking they're in a similar situation where they happen to be. Fit for DC is wonderful. It's unique. It's It should be a paradigm for uh, a, another model for being able to effectively 
close up gaps in health equity. So tell me a little bit about, about that. Um, and in fact, the idea of having to rebuild trust within the community and how Fit for DC is a, a good resolution for that. That's a great, that's a great, great um, uh, comment. One of the things that we wanted to be intentional about was bringing a lot of people who typically don't work together to develop workforce programs at the table. So we brought a lot of consortium partners, a lot of community members who are playing key roles so that we could keep ourselves honest in the type of training we were going to provide. You know, academicians are notorious for falling in love with our own ideas. And we wanted to make sure that whatever we put out was going to be one, relevant, two, that was going to be critical to solving the problems that we have in the district. Three, uh, that our program is going to use and train on existing technology that we know is being used in the district. So, for example, uh, we wanted our DCHIE training to be part of our training because, again, that's a technology that the district has made significant investments in. We also wanted to make sure that we were providing training on um, the array of electronic health record systems that are being used in the district. So we're very intentional in terms of understanding what the problems are bringing the right people to tell us what the problems are so we could use our educator backgrounds to make sure that we could create programming that would lend itself well uh, to solving said problems. So as a, as a paradigm and as a model, we feel like we have uh, championed uh, uh, the inclusion of several stakeholders that typically don't think of educators as partners in training, but that's really the way we ought to go in terms of training. We need to have curricula that are industry vetted, um, that are relevant and that meet the needs of the community. And the only way to do that is to make sure that when you're developing said programs that you really uh, do the kind of engagement and bring the right partners at the table. So that would be my first, um, my first comment. My second comment would be, you know, just making sure that we are inclusive from the get-go, that our approach uh, which is why we came up with the four-door model, is that we wanted to be inclusive of all career entry points. Because sometimes when we put workforce programming out that doesn't really feel like others in the community also have a space to be trained, then we leave our, uh, our, our boots on the ground, as it were, group out of the loop. And those are the ones who are really, really going to be able to help us solve some of the critical problems that we saw in care coordination um, over the pandemic. So while this touches broadly on our strategy on, on, you know, across all pathways, that's certainly also going to creep into our um, expert pathway that we're talking about today. Uh, I wanna ask you about PCMH training, if you wanna give a, a deeper dive, uh, what would be the benefit of your particular PCMH training program? Uh, how does your program in particular benefit the uh, community? I'm glad you asked this question. The program at PCMH is a model of care that really puts patients in the forefront of care. One of the direct benefits of PCMH training is the ability of the care team to practice at the top of your license, which means um, that they feel confident to perform the roles that, they, that are within your scope of practice, and they do this confidently. Patients who receive care from healthcare teams who are practicing at the top of your license means that they have a shot at um, receiving the best optimum care. 
care such as pre-visit planning, follow-up of care, aligning their care plan with their goals. Um, this allows the patients to not only feel like they are receiving the best care, but it allows them to adopt um, a method of continuity of care. Another benefit of PCMH is, um, again, making patients the center of care. As patients begin to feel like stakeholders, um, there's an urgent sense of health awareness for the patients, and they understand the benefits of continuing their care. These are the patients who come for their follow-up visits. They book the appointments. Um, if they're not able to make the appointments, they, they um, alert the practice, and the practice feels they feel confident enough to you know, give them another appointment or to even take the appointment through a telehealth approach or an audio visit. Um, and I think the very last benefit is healthcare equity. Um, this is huge. The benefits of healthcare equity cannot be over, overemphasized. Healthcare equity has a huge role in addressing social determinants of health. By this, we mean identifying available resources in the community to address the needs such as transportation, tackling food, tackling food deserts, and connecting patients to community resources that add value to them and ultimately increase their health. So training patients to take responsibility for their own care, that the onus is on them, and then demonstrating how there are local services available to them and, and that they, they do actually have access to care. Here are the services. Here's what you can do first. And giving them a couple of steps so that they feel here's the journey, and then maybe even giving them things to reflect back to you to say, okay, after this appointment, uh, why don't you give me a call or send me a note and and let me know how, how it went. I'd love to talk to you. And then we'll talk about what's next. All of this is, a, is this all a major goal for training the folks uh, through Fit for DC? Absolutely. Um, one of the ways to really find success in having patients um, really understand your own care and take a some responsibility of it is establishing trust. Um, training the frontline staff and professionals about patient-centered medical home will really help them to um, build confidence that they can explain to their patients on the importance of being stakeholders of their own care. Yeah. Several resources are available within the district and the community for our patients. Patients just need to know how to access them. Um, with the proper training um, through PCMH, we hope that the frontline staff can understand the benefit of establishing that trust between themselves and the patient in such a way that patients feel like um, they can adhere to the care plan. Patients feel like they can follow up after a discharge from a hospitalization. Um, patients feel the need to be transparent with their providers when they have not been um, following the medication regime. Um, this would ultimately lead to um, a process that we call transformation. When patients feel like they can trust um, their healthcare professionals and the healthcare professionals also feel like they can trust the patient to um, be a stakeholder in their own care. So for people interested in applying for this program, Fit for DC, people living within DC, and then this is a program for them, Give us some of the nuts and bolts. How do they apply? What are the prerequisites? Uh, a background and training we discussed before as possibilities, but the 
it should be anybody from any kind of professional background mm-hmm. would be able to enter into the program. But still, what are the prerequisites? Are there any? How does the program operate? Um, is field work part of it? Uh, are there different um, periods of time uh, for it? Is there an associate's or a master's or is it a certification program? So tell us more uh, about it on an academic sense and more about the program. So the intended outcomes for us as academicians would be for us to offer a robust training for them to ultimately sit for the PCMHCC credential. So um, we are going to leverage um, uh, our resources in that regard. Um, There are no prerequisites for participation uh, in terms of having a prior degree um, but you know they must be dem- they must have demonstrated the applicants that they are currently working in in healthcare um, and that they're well positioned and aligned to be able to support their practice or their organization with the CCE credential. Uh, we are prioritizing DC based organizations again in the spirit of fit for DC uh, regionally. We're also looking at um, individuals who are serving medically underserved. Uh, you know, patients. And so we're looking at those uh, in the applications. But again, the ultimate goal for the applicants is really to make sure that they are successful. And so we're spreading out a training that usually may be compressed, again, to accommodate, you know, what what is really a a busy group of of, of folks. And so we're trying to make this as, um, as, as, I wouldn't say painless, but as uh, consu- you know, easily digestible as possible. Um, so downstream, the university hopes to convert these programs to certificate programs. We're not there yet. There is whole academic process about that, uh, but we're using the data from our offerings to now provide evidence um, so that our boards that you know provide the appropriate approval for said certificate programs can see the value. Um, and the need and um, the relevance of our programs. Are you able to offer uh, financial assistance for folks who are interested? Great, 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 great question. Um, we are able to provide support for sitting the exam itself, um, but the value of uh, sitting the CCE, uh, you know, basically the the training that they would have had to, you know, either pay out of pocket or get institutional support that has already been taken care of because we have have our agreement uh, and collaboration with NCQA to be able to do that. Uh, We are able also to um, support any other barriers. For example, um, you know, our other programs also do this. So this is something that's broadly for all our pathways. So uh, if there are any barriers such as, um, um, you know, laptops, et cetera, technology to be able to access the course effectively, we're able to offset those um, costs as well. So again, we're trying to make this as the, make the barriers as low as possible for entry into our program um, and, you know, spread it out longitudinally for them to be able to um, have it be a meaningful experience. So let's look to the future. This program aims to in part to improve the ground game for resolving equity gaps, as we discussed. So all of this stuff, all things considered, let's jump 10 years ahead. Tell me about Southeast DC, which in, in many respects is is the uh, the core of the SCOH uh, issues that we're talking about here. Wards seven and eight, because DC is broken, is uh, subdivided into wards. How do you think 
that area of DC that under historically underserved, underrepresented um, in terms of health services, that uh, area, how do you think it might look in terms of improvements both to access to healthcare and the other side of it, of course, and people taking advantage of available services? What do you think it'll be in, in 10 years? That's a great question. Um, I consider myself a hopeful pragmatist. So full disclosure, I will frame my response from this lens. Uh, but you are right. The health equity gaps in Ward 7 and 8 are much wider and much deeper compared to the rest of D.C. Um, and the problems are real and communities are hurting and it will take a lot of heavy lifting. Um, however, there's hope. You know, there has been significant health IT investments made with regards to uh, connectivity to our DCHIE. There's expanded telehealth access and many other efforts that are being championed um, by DHCF and others in the community to improve the interoperability problem, you know, so that we can be able to do population health management in the way that it really should be done. Uh, if we continue to customize our training as we're trying to do, I I'm certain that we will be able to solve local problems eventually. Um, so I will say that there will be some positive impact, but not so sure what the impact will look like. Again, because the lift is heavy. Uh, but I think everyone understands now that healthcare is truly in the community. I think post-COVID, we all understand that healthcare is in the community if we want to try and solve it. And, you know, our ground game has to be community focused and we have to stay the course and we have to be honest and transparent in a way that truly leaves no one behind, then we will see some change. Um, I love football analogies, so I'll end with this one. I think everybody knows that you have to have a good running game to set up the deep pass, you know? So the deep pass here being the success of these large public health initiatives in IT and health IT that we're making and all these investments. So our goal is to really have a good running game so that eventually when these deep pass opportunities come and when there's, you know, great opportunities to make big changes, there's a running game to go along with it that leads to more consistent success. So um, that's what we hope for. And hopefully, you know, we'll see each other in the next 10 years and see how well we did. Um, Hannah, go ahead. Is uh, anything you'd like to add, please? Absolutely. That's a, a great question. And just to piggyback on what Dr. Wanda has mentioned, um, 10 years from now, we, we really um, would hope that the collaboration of Howard University with um, partners would have made a huge impact within the community, whereby members of the communities in this Ward 7 and 8 are also being taught in the healthcare space on the whys, and they, are also, they eventually become healthcare professionals in the frontline staff or as providers, and they would really understand the whys of the importance of great healthcare. Um, for many years, Howard University has collaborated with um, community members, and 10 years from now, they will still continue to do that through healthcare IT, um, digital health, addressing social determinants of health, and it really looks promising. Um, it really feels promising. It looks promising. Um, healthcare five years ago is not the same thing as what healthcare is now. So there is hope. There's a lot of hope for um, healthcare in D.C., especially in these underserved areas um, with the help of 
healthcare equity access um, with the help of telehealth, with the help of digital health, uh, case management uh, resources that are being available. Um, it looks promising. So I would love to um, quote one of my favorite um, authors, who's James Clare, who says, the efforts you put in today um, determine your outcomes for tomorrow. So you're doing the work, uh, we put it in the efforts, and it looks really good. Dr. Mary Awanda and Hannah George, who joined me to talk about Fit for DC's training program. I'll have a link to the program in this episode's description. Announcing NCQA's next big event, the Health Equity Forum, coming up March 4th and 5th, 2024, at the Westin Los Angeles Airport. The Health Equity Forum convenes state officials, advocates, and healthcare providers showcasing the blueprint for creating and implementing statewide health equity strategies. Two days. Day one, California state officials and health equity leaders will discuss why California has prioritized health equity, and they'll also share best practices for health equity collaboration. As for day two, that features a workshop and training with NCQA experts about our health equity accreditation programs. You'll determine your readiness to earn accreditation, identify challenges along the way, and learn how you can address them. So if you feel you are a champion of health equity, diversity, and inclusion, NCQA wants to partner with you. We offer many opportunities that can be customized to align with your strategic objectives and your specific health equity goals. Find out more at ncqa.org and search Health Equity Forum or click the link in this episode's description. And now an angle on the digital transformation of healthcare in the United States that we haven't discussed enough. NCQA works overtime in creating digital products that smooth the path to better quality health for all. And why do we do it? Of course, digitalization ensures the safe and efficient transfer and parsing of healthcare data between providers. Patients benefit, clinics benefit, uh, clinicians can spend more time with their patients. And improvements in data transfer and parsing reveal more population data than ever before, which then uncovers gaps in health equity. And with that population data and other data, researchers can start to reverse deficiencies and ensure better health care for all. And that's what it's all about. So here's another take. The more efficient and the more effective we can become at transferring data, the more data we can evaluate and work into the system. And more data brings more numbers, which brings more revelations, which leads to further improvements in care and competency in our healthcare system. And by more data, I mean supplemental data. Which brings me to my next guest. Josh Hetler is Chief Operations Officer at Datalink. Josh has over a decade of experience developing software products for advancing value-based healthcare. At Datalink, he's held management, director, and vice president positions, successfully building strategies that impact customer adoption and engagement. I interviewed Josh live and in person at NCQA's second annual Health Innovation Summit in October 2023 in Orlando, Florida. Every day at his job, Josh focuses on how interoperability improvements can help find missing and supplemental data and then close gaps in care, 
and improve quality performance. And he starts it all with a simple definition that expands the possibilities of digitalization exponentially. So supplemental data is any data element or file or image that comes in after the moment of care other than a claim or encounter. And most health plans have been operating for decades off of the providers fill out a progress note, then the billing team will submit a claim, and that's all we know about. We find out about what's on the claim. But most claims do not have that much info. It's obviously way less than what's in the provider note. Therefore, this term supplemental data was created. Uh, supplemental data, when I first started at Datalink, would have meant a PDF or an image or a screenshot. Now, supplemental data is most commonly referred to in, in a conference like this as actual data, not a PDF, but data elements that can be utilized to not only close quality gaps such as HEDIS or STARS gaps, but also do any of the other components around managing patient care. And again, I, I think the important element is most of what happens with supplemental data is about finding out about things after the visit so that you can make more well-informed decisions for the next visit, or at least make sure that the provider gets credit for everything that they discussed during that visit. So where where should we look for supplemental data? What, what are the, you don't have to list everything, but what are some of the main places that have been overlooked as far as sources of supplemental data that can be used later? Yeah, the, the most obvious one is always EHR data. Um, EHRs are filled with information that does not make it onto a claim. Therefore, it is by far the most um, well-rounded and, and enriched set of supplemental data, which is why that is the majority of the data sources that we have connected to um, come from EHR connections. The other ones, another very popular one with lots of enriched data is uh, immunization registries. A ton of the quality measures have to do with properly caring for members at all sorts of different ages, which means you need to know when an actual um, immunization or vaccine was given so that the health plan can then be aware of it and pass all of their quality measures. So those are the two primary sources that Datalink is connected with. The others tend to be your HIE connections that are across the country for hospital data, um, lab information from sources like LabCorp, Quest, or any of the other lab vendors, and then pharmacy data, because pharmacy data is very unique in the sense that it doesn't matter if the physician prescribes something to you, it only matters if you actually filled that prescription. So supplemental data is kind of a, is a unique place there because so many people can get their hands on knowing what was prescribed, but there's so few sources about knowing what was actually filled at a pharmacy for that member. It sounds like you can just think of the patient's journey, like the, the most extreme, intricate uh, example of a patient journey of, uh, and I feel bad for this person, by the way, of, of every single thing that could possibly happen to somebody that has something that's a, a difficult condition to, to deal with, and say, okay, each one of those visits, each uh, professional that they encounter is going to be gathering data from them. Uh, so just like you said, and then maybe that's another way sort of horizontally that you could say, okay, well, here's a person who went to the PCP, and then they went to the specialist, and then they got you know stuff drawn, they got labs done, yep. they got imaging done, they went back to another doctor, then they went to the hospital, and within the hospital, there's the you know there's there's a whole crew of, of uh, professionals and of clinicians that had to to look at them, and, and and so for each one of those steps along the way, there's data, data, data. There's there's things that are there that can be scooped up and gathered and aggregated. Absolutely, and for a lot of 
a lot of health plans, when they think about it like that, think about when you were doing this manually and you wanted to get your hands on those records. You would have to start with, I'm going to call the first doctor that I know about. And then when I get that data, I'm going to learn that they were sent to a specialist after that. Right. And then you keep having to go through this cycle. Um, it's where we really have tried to change the method of going about that. We cast a much broader net. We are connecting to EHR and these systems looking to pull as much information as possible to find this info so that you're not having to go through those iterations of now I found one thing, I need to look for the next thing. Um, one of our health plan customers just yesterday was referring to it as they're used to having to find breadcrumbs. And every breadcrumb leads you to the next right. one and to the next one. Whereas, again, the way that we're going about it, we're trying to find that end path as quickly as possible because there's deadlines. You run out of time. Right now, it's very difficult because, you know, we're at the very end of a HEDIS year. We're also up have an upcoming CMS risk adjustment deadline in January. You don't have time to go through every single step trying to retrieve these records. You have to be able to do it efficiently while still getting all of the quality data that you're looking for. So in the journey of this data, how, how do you, or at what point, once you gather all of this data, what are you able to do with it? To, to convert it into something that's quality-based, then what happens with the data next? So every health plan that we have ever worked with has at least two different data formats that they require. And most of them, that format was probably built 20 years ago. And they asked every provider group across the country, they said, hey, we want your HEDAS data. Please make me this Excel file for quality. Then make me this separate Excel file for risk. And there's probably different ones for Medicaid and different ones for Medicare, commercial, everything. Right. We take the data that's coming from these sources. We learn all of those different formats that every payer is used to receiving. We don't say deal with ours, right? We say, look, this we already know what works in your system. And that allows them to act on it very quickly with as little effort as possible on their end. Since most health plans are insurance carriers, they're about caring for members, they're about managing provider networks, yeah. and we're not asking them to also be a technologist dealing with data that we're just throwing at them. I, I don't even understand with, with people, with all kinds of companies that have to now deal with digital transformation. And I'm saying that in a really negative kind of connotation um, because there are companies that are still looking at it negatively. They're worried this is going to slow them down. It's a, a burden on them to learn how to digitalize all their systems. Um, but as far as interoperability goes, it sounds like you're sitting there and you're trying to aggregate. It's not just the data. But if people are sending you forms in all different kinds of formats and all these different companies are maybe coming at you, they all have their own proprietary software. How do you how are you able to gather so many records from so many different places that could be in so many different formats? Um, how much time is taken? How much effort does it take for your company to be able to find and extract the data and then just hopefully standardize it uh, in order for it to be parsed later? And are you using fire as the basis for for some of the work that you're doing or all the work so when i started 12 years ago it was very different those formats were all over the place and you couldn't even trust the data from the sources because the ehrs had just started rolling out ccd exports and things of of standards that weren't actually standard because right. everyone had implemented them differently <laughs> it's standard in my office exactly yeah. <laughs> um over the last five years that has changed the the data that we pull out of the ehrs has become much more reliable because CMS and ONC 
they have teeth. They started finding companies that were not adhering to the required policies that needed to happen. Mm -hmm. And that really quickly caused people to kind of get in line and start handling that better. The other thing is groups like NCQA, they created things like the DAV certification, where they said, look, we know that these EHRs have had to improve all of these things. Therefore, we don't believe every health plan and every provider out there should keep having to go through these audits every single year, these PSV or primary source verification audits. Right. Those were difficult. Imagine if every health plan was sending your staff a request for 10 or 20 records multiple times per year saying, this is just to prove that the data that we received is valid. So now we get to kind of piggyback off of the fact that NCQA is doing great things of accepting that certain data elements are now trustworthy and therefore we go through an audit with ncqa once every six months rather than every provider group doing it um, on that same frequency um, and that's had a very large component with it you asked about fire right now we we have our own ehr so we are also a cures act certified platform but that's not how we do our interoperability it's just how we learned the ins and outs of what every EHR had to be capable of. Mm -hmm. And also, quite frankly, we learned how every EHR might hide it because right. no company that builds software wants to freely make the data from that software available. That makes it easy to move from one to another. Right. But, but FHIR as a standard yep. is more about interoperability. So yep. within your own company, you can do it one way. Yep. But when it comes to then sending the information out. So we, the way that the FHIR requirements went with the Cures Act, every EHR was required to have fire export capabilities. Um, none of them are there yet, right? Every EHR has a registration process, right? We have it for our own. We're going through it with over 40 different EHRs. Every one of them is into 2024 right now about when those registrations will be accepted. Um, so that's a big part about using it. And then the same thing kind of goes on delivering it. Right now, it is very rare for us to have a, an organization where their request is to receive that data in a FHIR format. Uh, we have one, one major customer out of all of our customers that they actually have an up and running FHIR server where that is how they actually prefer to receive that data. So that's how we send it to them. But again, I think we're still probably a couple of years away from that being the norm uh, compared to what, uh, what people are doing right now. So before I ask you the last question, which is about a couple of years from now question, yep. um, tell me about, there's something called Evoke 360. So tell me what that is. Yes, so all of our interoperability service is called Evoke Connect, right? That's a, it's a service. We are connecting to data, aggregating it, putting into formats that our customers can act on. Evoke 360 is why the company has been around for over 20 years. Um, that's around enabling payers and provider groups that are in value-based care arrangements to know which members they need to be scheduling, which providers need to change their documentation habits, which specialists are having the best outcomes at the most uh, economic rates instead of taking advantage of situations. Um, and that's what Evoke 360 is. It is either rolled out by a provider group directly if they are our customer or in the majority of scenarios the payer is our customer and they've said look we're going to use evoke 360 as how you our provider groups can best manage the members that we're in a risk arrangement with um, and if i wanted to simplify it as much as possible the initial training is teaching the staff members at the actual practice level that if they want to be successful in a value-based care arrangement they cannot wait for patients to call them when they are sick. 
They have to look at which members are most impactable and need documentation to be redone from prior years. Otherwise, the value-based care arrangements are not going to be successful. So they use our platform to know exactly who those members are. And then the Evoke Connect part comes in at the very end to make sure the health plans find out about what they did. So let's talk about the future. Yeah. And I, you can tell me how many years in the future you want to talk about. Um, because I, I'm not even sure. And it, it sounds like... Um, for what you're discussing, we're not quite at the part where the ball is rolling and every company that you um, that you touch is um, at the same point in, let's say, in, in their digital transformation uh, journey. But the fact that you they're dealing with you and the fact that they're reaching out to DataLink or vice versa and establishing those relationships, that starts to pull everybody towards similar nomenclature and similar measures and similar standards. Um, so if I gave you, I'm going to give you 10 years instead of five years. Mm -hmm. um, what in 10 years, what does the future look like for supplemental data, for using it, gathering it, the, the aggregation, the parsing out? Uh, and what recommendations do you have for companies uh, to push them ahead? So last night we were at dinner with one of our customers and they brought up that today they're meeting with a key policy team member uh, that works with both NCQA and CMS. And she asked my opinion. She said, what do you think is reasonable to expect in near term, like in the next couple of years, policy changes? Uh, right now, whether everyone intentionally does it or not, there is a lot of provider group resistance to sharing data with their health plans unless there is a clear benefit to them in their contractual arrangement. And that should not exist. If a provider group is going to make their EHR data available to one health plan, they should at least be willing to make it available to all of their health plans. Because in most situations, it's actually more work to limit it down to only one than it would be to make it widely available. Um, might sound counterintuitive because you'd think more data, more work, but not in this scenario. More work to limit it down to only a specific set. And for the sake of standardization, you don't want to have every, you're trying to corral everybody Correct. together. So I do think that in the next five, 10 years, that will happen. I think that there will be requirements that if a provider group is going to make data from their EHR available to one health plan, then they will be obligated to make that available to all to remove that as a bargaining chip when it comes to contract negotiations, because it shouldn't be, right? The care of the members should win every single time. And you shouldn't ever like use data about a member that someone could benefit from in the care of that member as a bargaining chip in that scenario. So I, I do think that will change. Um, standardization, I do not think that every health plan will ever have one HEDIS format that they ingest, one risk format that they ingest. Um, there are systems that have just been in place for too long inside every health plan across the country. But I think there could be some movement on that as certain players start getting larger in the, you know, the Tefka and QHIN space that maybe there will be some consolidation there that will make it a bit more standardized than it is today. Um, but I think the biggest thing are the positive things that are happening with Fire API capabilities is just an all around win. APIs are better than flat files in every way. Um, from a scalability, security, uh, accessibility standpoint, all of those different things. Uh, so I think that as, you know, again, these years go by and, and the fire standards catch up with what took probably seven or eight years on the CCD side to become trustworthy, I think it'll be much faster than that. But again, there's still something that's a couple of years away. 
It should accelerate. <laughs> it, sh it, it should. I mean, it's, it's, you're not banging your head against the wall yeah. that the companies have their own ways of doing these things. But, but when they're outward facing and when the data has to flow bi-directionally, mm -hmm. um, I mean, is it possible to say that these companies working in order to be able to work together, they're gradually more and more learn between learning and between CMS sort of pushing them in that direction that um, they're going to come up with standards at least when it comes to uh, communicating with one another or communicating with something like data link that happens to be in the middle uh, and helping them with their workflow. Yes, it's, it's going to require more policy. Every version of meaningful use got a little better and a little better because most EHRs do the bare minimum to reach those certifications. And it just turned out that the first two versions of the bare minimum weren't enough to be trustworthy, usable data. The Cures Act did change that. It put a lot more emphasis on the exact parts that had to be there for the data to not just be exportable, but also usable. And that's where we've seen a lot of benefits over the last couple of years to all of our customers, everyone on being able to trust that was going to be that way. And the same thing comes in whenever we do have a customer come across an issue because of those teeth I was talking about of there actually being fines, the EHRs resolve the issues. Whereas before, who knows when those things might have gotten resolved, could have taken years. Um, and again, that, that will accelerate, I think. And again, I don't think it's going to take, I think it really took about eight years for CCDs to be widely considered acceptable from when they first started being available, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, the fire standards will not take that long. A absolutely. It's just, they're not quite there today, even though every conversation has fire in it with every customer we've ever had. It's in every contract we've had for the last five years. One is actually using it today. So it's, uh, again, it's, it's new and exciting, but it has a bit more time before it's, again, used widely. Datalink Chief Operations Officer Josh Hetler. For more about how NCQA supports implementation of FHIR in our products, just go to ncqa.org and type FHIR in the search box at the top right corner of the screen. As we do on each episode of Inside Healthcare, we ask you for your thoughts on today's show. Email us at communications at ncqa.org anytime and be sure to include Inside Healthcare in the subject line. And for coming up empty, here's our question for this episode. What kind of healthcare training could you gain to best serve your hometown community? And if you have a comment, a suggestion, an idea for a guest on our show, and maybe you want to be a guest on our show, then just email us and let us know, communications at ncqa.org. And be sure to write inside healthcare, those three words, in the subject line. Hope to hear from you soon. And that's it for episode 120 of NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast. Thanks for joining us. This episode's done, but there are plenty that came before it for you to explore, peruse, and investigate. And you can find us at blog.ncqa.org or find us on any Apple or Google streaming app. Whether you download the show or you stream it, if you find us, then follow us. And spread the word. Help us build our audience by letting others know about NCQA's work. If you haven't done so already, connect with NCQA on LinkedIn and Twitter. You'll get video promos for this show to share with your friends and colleagues. And as always, we thank you, our loyal listener, for helping our audience continue to grow. 
On behalf of our award-winning NCQA communications team, I'm Dave Smolar. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.